Let's do good clapsing. Come on. <clears throat> Let's do the clapsing again. It's just a clap to the right. <laughs> and then a snap to the left. Oh, God. Imagine what the Rocky Horror Picture Show would be like if they actually had the clapsing. <laughs> Take the shot. That's a goal. Sorry. Um, hmm. I forgot. It's a new Premiership season this weekend. Just watched my football team score their fourth goal, which dates this podcast immensely. It sure does. Not only but, is it dated immensely, but you're also the only person here who cares about sports. So now you're like, now you're like super, super limiting the uh, re rewatch avail- rewatchability of that quote. Yeah. Ah well. Right. Let's just kick straight into this then. This is the Immaterial Gamers podcast. Sure is. Ain't no imitators. No. Imitator. Immaterial, not imitate. It's 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 immaterial, but there's no imitation. Yeah. Why would you imitate something that's immaterial? I mean. I mean, that's just bizarre. Why would you do that? But uh, yeah, we are. Why would you do that? (laughs) We are on episode fifty-four, and it's one of our occasional two-man pods. Yep. It's your boy Ryan. It's the it's your golden boys or your ginger boys, I guess. Yeah, uh, bronze boys. Bronze boys. Gotcha. Copper boys. Copper there you boys. go. Yeah, it's like it's like it's it's a highly discount uh, cider copper boy. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so it's 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 one of your copper boys. It's Ryan, and then it's your other copper boy. It's Duncan from across the pond. Indeed, and yeah, I mean, what about that week? What about what it? Week? What do you even want to know? Who's that? Uh, I just stopped my microphone off my desk. Hold on, I fixed it. I'm good. I'm good. Resume. Yeah, it's such a such a, a what a week that microphones get dropped. It's, it was that shocking. I mean, actually, now that I think about it, not much in the games industry happened apart from regulation, discrimination, and you know, bad shit. Yeah, it was a, it was a miserable news week. Uh, I yeah. gotta be honest. Yeah, and we'll, we'll we'll get to that miserable news week a little bit later on. I mean, I think at this point it's more of a case we need to do anything, anything at all, to to make this a, a happy little podcast before the train takes a turn at Depression Central. So it usually doesn't go up from after the games. You know, it usually usually the news is when it gets brought down. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess I guess at that point, I mean. Yeah, it's nice to show some sort of enthusiasm in, in what we what we enjoy, and then just watch how every industry in the world tries to take that from you. But I've got to be careful. I don't want to make this a, a, you know, sort of depression and a manifesto. I mean, this this sort of comes up before the news later on. Let it let it be clear. The amount of shit that's going on in the world. Don't try and find an entertainment medium, the thing that keeps people happy. And you know, an escape from the crap in the world. Don't try and make that your reason. The bad stuff's happening. It's like the the way this podcast is normally formatted. It's like a microcosm of gamer society. It's just like you know, like we talk about the games that we're playing. You know, we're having fun. You know, doing our thing. Meanwhile, the whole world is falling apart <laughs> just yeah. outside our window. <laughs> yeah, and pretty, we occasionally acknowledge it. Yeah. But then we're just kind of like, back to our games, I guess. 
yeah, definitely. But you know, it came up as a bit of a joke. One of my one of my old workmates went and posted something on his Facebook last week, um, as I put up the podcast actually, and it was uh, it was along the lines of, you know, thank God we don't have video games over here in the UK, otherwise we'd be rife with gun violence. And um, I, I kind of had to respond that we're going to need to shut immaterial gamers down lest it become a manifesto of hatred. We're like the British know. Al-Qaeda. Is it... <laughs> well, now we're on the watch list. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we were already uh, banned in China. I mean, what, what, how much worse can it get? Yeah, fair, fair. I mean, that being said, all all that's left is Russia, and then we've hit the, you know, the trifecta, haven't we? I'm way more scared of Russia than I am of uh, anyone from the East. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Okay. See, then. see, see. China will just censor you. Russia will like send people. Like there will mm. be people at your door, and they'll be like, "You don't talk about Russia anymore." Now they'll 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 go and find, they'll go and find a building in Manchester, you know, or like, you know, I mean, I mean, South Manchester. So you know, we could just turn around and just say. Oh look, they've come to see Great Saint Andrew's Church. You know, one of one of Manchester's most beloved churches. No, next thing I know, I'll have some sort of like powder on my door handle, and uh, you'll you'll see me in the news in two weeks after. Oh boy, now we can talk about Ryan in the news. <laughs> and in oh. our uh, first article, first and only article of news this week, uh, turns out one of our co-creators uh, died. Yeah. He yeah, touched some powder and then he died. Uh, I know it's it's just it's just great, you know, to think that that would be the case. And then we'd have to find. Uh, I feel sorry for the person who would edit that one. Then fucking Russian Mar- rice and poisoning. Yeah, that'd be Martin that'd have to edit it. Mm. Mm. So anyway, I've got an idea about powder. No. Um... So speaking of assassinations. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's, let's assassinate to, uh... this intro. Yeah, let's 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 finish it. So uh yeah, let's move on to what's been played. What's been played. So Duncan. Yeah, I was what have you uh, played? I was uh kinda of struggling this morning to think about like did I play anything in the last week or two that was new? Um so yeah, that actually did come one thing did come to mind that was totally worth talking about. So sometime back in one of the earlier podcasts I talked about um, my StarCraft Risk board. Oh yes, yeah, you, you board game that you used at a family board game night at one point, right? Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it's an alternative version of Risk that's been flipped on its uh x-axis. Excuse me, I'm yeah, barping into the microphone. Um, and you know, it's they've got extra, they've got special rules. You know, you've got hero characters that add one to your maximum dice roll. You've got objectives that you can use to win the game or give you a boost, you know, some kind of advantage over other players, etc., etc. It's a great board game. Uh, I love the new rules for it. And I recently played another uh, variation on Risk. Ooh. Ryan, are you a fan of Game of Thrones? I I know of Game of Thrones. You know of Game of Thrones? You have heard of Game of Thrones? I have, certainly, indeed. And I know there was some warring houses, a uh, a giant stabby throne, and dragons. Yes, that is that. That's a good summary of Game of Thrones. Cool. So yeah, Game of Thrones has a risk set. Ooh, so and, be. Uh, 
set in, set in Westeros? Tech, actually, that's the cool thing. It's the first Risk set I've ever bought that comes with not one, but two boards. Oh. The first board is uh, Westeros, the primary setting of the Game of Thrones uh, books and TV series. Yeah. Uh, however, there's also a second board featuring Essos, which is uh, the eastern continent. Ah. Which is the which is so is the secondary setting of the show, and uh, the primary region in which uh, Daenerys Targaryen's story unfolds for much of the first three quarters of the show. Oh yeah, because she she spends a glacially long amount of time getting over to Westeros, right? Yeah, yeah, because you know, at the beginning of the series, she had to flee with her brother because they were being persecuted. Blah blah blah, whatever. Anyway, so she went. So she uh, grew up in Essos, and, uh, you know, cool things were happening there. And uh, so, yeah, basically, the Westeros map is a five-player map, mm. and Essos is the head-to-head two-player map. Ah, so it's sort of kind of... The, there was a point with Risk at one point where they decided that it was a bit unsustainable for people to play a massive game of Risk, so they did have a small two-person more objective-based version of the game. Before then, people decided that was too small and they brought back the original one again, but in a more modern military setting. Yeah, so there have been a lot of different versions of Risk. Mm. And, um, so this is the latest and greatest version. Oh. So, how, uh, so what's different about, uh, Game of Thrones Risk as opposed to any other edition of Risk? Okay, so... The the StarCraft version of Risk has a set of global objectives. Uh, yes. They're, they're referred to as achievements that you can uh, unlock throughout mm-hmm. the game. Anyone can has access to them. Anyone can get them. And by unlocking them, uh, you get some special advantage, one that's unknown to you until you receive it. It's randomly yeah. allocated at the beginning of the game. Uh, then... And depending on what game mode you win, you may win the game after a certain number of objective objectives have been attained, mm-hmm. or they might just be permanent buffs for you throughout the game, and then you just have to do regular conquests for the rest of it. Depends on what version you're playing. Yeah. Game of Thrones uh, actually introduces a currency system. They have uh, they have a gold system. Okay. Where there are ports in the game, which essentially act as like portals. Uh, between any, there are two different colors of ports, and any same color port is connected to every other same color port. Right. So you can declare war, on, you can declare an invasion on a territory that's like halfway across the map from another port, so it creates a lot of like lateral thinking, like you're not just thinking about the extremities of your borders as being, you know, places from which you can be attacked you also have to consider control of the ports as essential so that part is already pretty cool but on top of that the currency system sets it up so that you get gold based on how many troops you get at the beginning of the map at the beginning of the round Mm. so say you get six troops you get 600 gold it's all in donations of 100 uh and for every port that you have you also get an additional 100 gold right okay uh, so, with this gold, you have 
a set of uh, four, every player, every army has four, like, character cards. Mm-hmm. And each character card has an associated cost and an ability that you can use once per turn by paying the gold cost. Right, okay. Yeah, so they refresh every turn. And what are these sort of abilities... Well, like you might, then? for example, you could f- play, you could pay 300 gold to increase the value of your dice for, by one, for the rest of this invasion. This, this like, between these two territories, all of your dice rolls are increased by one. Mm-hmm. Or it might say, you know, pay, you know, 100 gold or 200 gold and replace one of your attack dice with an eight-sided die instead of a six-sided die for the duration of this invasion or or for this turn or whatever. Yeah. So these are the kinds of things that you can get off of character cards. Temporary, useful uh, abilities that can help you claim some territories. Right. Another thing you can do, but the other thing you can do with the money is you can also spend it on objective cards. Objective cards are basically how you win in the, like, full version of this game. Like, it has, it has a it has a version of the game that's kind of like basically just regular risk with some small variations. Yeah. But the 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 like full version of the game, you complete objectives, you buy them in a from a store for two hundred gold apiece, and then you try to fulfill those objectives. You know, they'll give you a mission, you know, claim three territories in one turn from a single enemy, you know, claim two ports, own one of each kind of port, etc., etc., and they'll all have different amounts of victory points associated with them. Yeah. And by getting ten victory points from any objectives that you buy, you win the game. Right, okay. You can also buy what are called maester cards, which are maester cards, yes. Uh, and they're the same price as objective cards, they're 200 points. You don't get any victory points for for them. However, unlike character cards, which are, like, repeatable every turn, mm. maester cards, can you can spend an additional gold cost associated with whatever, you know, the card that you bought was to do a one-time, one-and-done ability that could affect you for the whole turn, or it could do something else for you. It could put extra units on the board. It could kill units from your opponent's army. There's a lot of things it could do. There's there's like 40 different Maester cards, so a wide variety of different useful utility abilities. Uh, hmm. I think one of them was like one of them was brutal. You, know, you you buy the card for 200 gold, and then you pay an additional 300 gold, so 500 gold in total you pay. But by doing that. Uh, at the beginning of your opponent's next turn, they get half the number of uh, armies and gold for their turn. Ugh. With an obvious minimum of three, since that's the basic rules of risk. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you can make them, you know, if they were going to get seven armies and, you know, a thousand gold, they now, and it's a rounded down as well, mm. so they now get, like, three armies and, like, 500 gold or or less Oof. or even like because if it was 300 armies right you know 300 armies plus like uh, say whatever x number of ports mm. you know I, i'm trying i'm trying to imagine how many ports you would need for like so if you so if you had like seven armies and like three ports okay there you go that's a number that gives you a thousand gold but it's like not only does it have your army 
so you would only get like 600 gold instead of the original 1,000. But then it halves that gold amount. So then you'll get three armies and like 300 gold. Oh. So it's a brutal card. It goes from 1,000 gold and seven armies to 300 gold and three armies. Well worth the investment. Yeah. Savage card. And they're not all that powerful, but some of them are completely ridiculous. Like, are any of them broken ridiculous? Then? That was it. That's just sort of one example of something that just sort of majorly changes how it goes. Honestly, I haven't seen them all. I've only seen maybe a quarter of them because we only, we've only played one game so far. But, all right. I, yeah, I mean, I imagine that they're not particularly balanced, but at the same time, it kind of makes it more exciting when they're not. Yeah. So it just adds a twist to the game, especially if someone may be just running away with it. Yeah. It was pretty crippling. When I played that card, like, I had just basically... I had basically just solidified myself as, like, the owner of the eastern half of the board at that point. And just mm. as my mom thought she was going to be able to turn in, you know, some cards and make a comeback, you know, break up my ter- my break up my continents and whatever, I play that yeah. on her, and she gets three armies and 300 gold, and she's like, well, I guess that's that then. <laughs> and, uh concession uh it sounds like some good good war-based times yeah it's definitely there's a lot more to it than regular risk for sure it's really fun uh there's another thing i love it when i also love it when versions of risk uh, incentivize you to turn in your territory cards for some other benefit other than just saving them for armies yeah because then it gives you like a little bit more strategy because then it's like, do I use this for armies or do I use this for you know its face value? And then in StarCraft Risk, every card had its own like ability associated with it, mm. which you know the Maester cards essentially take the place of that in this version. But the one thing you can do with territory cards in this version is you can use them to place special units. Like each card has like a uh, a symbol on it. You know, it basically corresponds to, like, the, you know, the infantry, cavalry, tank picture that they would have in regular risk. Mm-hmm. But it's but in this case, it's, like, knight, siege engine, uh, and, like, castle or something. Yeah. The knight uh, is a unit that doesn't add one to your force. It doesn't count as a unit, but it moves with your army and gives you plus one to your highest die roll wherever it, that army is fighting. Siege engine replaces one of your dice with an eight-sided die. Oh, the what now? An eight-sided die. That's, that that really doesn't sound like risk at that point. Yeah, no, it's it was cool when we saw that. It was like, oh my god, that's different. Yeah. There's up to three eight-sided die. Okay. And the reinforcement uh, is a exclusively defensive unit. It doesn't move at all. Uh, and when someone tries to attack into a fortified territory, uh, I think it, I believe it adds one to all your dice rolls mm. or something similar to that effect. Okay. So yeah, yeah, the, all of the, all of those fortification, all of those special units, whenever a territory is taken over with one in it, they all like die right away. So like if they run out of armies in that area, that unit goes with it, but they stay alive as long as you are able to preserve that you know, that force, that army. Mm. You know, they're effectively they're effectively the last man out, even though they're not actually a man. 
so yeah, it's it's really cool. It's a very interesting version of Risk, and I highly encourage any Game of Thrones fans who like board games, or any Risk fans who have even a passing interest in Game of Thrones to try it out. Honestly, I think even people who have never watched Game of Thrones would probably get a kick out of it. It's a very interesting twist on the game. Yeah, certainly has a different take on Risk. It's uh, something that's ended up in my sort of idea, because if it was just Risk but in Game of Thrones, it probably wouldn't have gone, but with what you've told me, it's just Risk but different enough to actually think, yes please. Ooh, and it's, it's on, and, it's and, and it is pounds. yeah and it is cool because like you know the starcraft risk board is essentially it's essentially just the same map just like you know the shape the the territories are shaped slightly differently and it's been flipped on the x-axis and whatever but everything is still mostly the same hmm. but the two boards in the risk the game of thrones risk are unique game of thrones themed maps they're completely different from any they're not based on anything in regular risk they're they're their own thing yeah so that's also another cool twist because that's another thing that's pretty stagnant about risk is that no matter what version of the game you play certain territories and certain strategies just work better than others but on the new maps you kind of have to make up a new game plan that isn't based on old risk strategies yeah so yeah that was uh that was my game for this Week I played a, one game on the Essos map with my mom, and I definitely want to try the the Westeros map and maybe see if we can get other people to play. Sweet, you know what I'll also do at some point then. See if someone's modded it in tabletop sim. Ooh, that would be interesting. Yeah, because I mean, you got. I also got to be careful because it's like you know, someone might say someone might make a Game of Thrones risk that isn't necessarily like you know the the Game of Thrones risk. Hmm. So you'd have to like go in and look and see like okay is this like actually based on the board game version or is this like this person's own mad invention? <laughs> yeah, but well, I think we can get that verified with you and uh, we'll see we'll see how that works later down the line. Now for me, um, mine's mine's not been anywhere near as in depth because I've played I played the little game with myself called. What to do now that we've got an extra hour before the podcast? Uh, so with that, I just quickly looked in my library you, and went and picked. Can you buy that on Steam? Um, you can't buy that in particularly uh, particularly on Steam, but you can choose games on Steam as part of that game. So, uh, so I played the game called Streets of Rogue. Streets of Rogue. Yeah. So uh, it's a shocking roguelike game. Oh my god. I know, right? It's not going like it rogue. says it in the name or anything. Or going going rogue is fun. I mean it it will be on probably on the list of going rogue games at some point since I'm very near the end of the current going rogue journey with Hades. Even when they bloody patched it with another biome, which means that then my my objective would technically increase again, but no. Anyway, this roguelike game is a effectively a parody of Streets of Rage, the Mega Drive fighting game which has got a sequel coming out very soon if it's not already out, where they've changed the art style of it and it looks cool. So this is the point where Ryan just quickly checks his phone to see if Streets of Rage 4 is, uh, is out yet. Streets of Rage. So yeah. 
Streets of Streets of Rage is the do yeah. So Streets of Rage was the fighting game on the Mega Drive, which involved uh, rookie cops taking on a corrupt regime of gangs in their city that had bought out the police. Streets of Rogue is a underground resistance of people causing havoc in a city because the mayor stole all the beer. God damn it, mayor. Prohibition the... didn't work. When will you learn? Yeah, so he stole all the beer and made chicken nuggets illegal because he had a tummy ache one time. <gasps> Alright, he's gotta die. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, you play as one of various characters in the roguelite tradition. They have their own stats and strengths and weaknesses and starting items and weird little stuff. And you start from the bottom of the city to try and get to the top of it. It's it's layered. So you've got the slums on the floor. It's like Midgar from Final Fantasy. Mm. Slums on the bottom. You've got the midtown. And then you've got the upper town where the mayor lives. And uh, yeah, you go on to each level. You have to complete a set of randomly generated missions on a randomly generated map. And then you go up to the next floor. You have a life bar where if you run out, you die. And you start back from the beginning again. And you don't keep any items or money that you had in it. What you do get are chicken nuggets. They're the rare item, the upgrade your shit item. The item that allows you to then get further on the game each time. And uh, yeah, it's very it's top down. It's 2D, pixely business, all sprites. And um, there's not much more to say about it at the moment. Because it's pretty much as simply, if you want a five minute game, then you play this. You just I see. some of the some of the objectives will be just like turn off the lights in a house. Turn okay. off the lights. Turn off the lights. Yep. Uh, another one will be destroy a generator, or um, just receive this item from this man. Okay, cool. And you get random little objectives and random rewards for doing it. Um, at what point but do you? Uh, at what point do you fight Sephiroth? Um, you don't. Unless you don't think so. But it's, it's, it's mm. very, very... It's very parody. The game is a very... It wears its humour on its sleeve. You've got a resistance leader at the beginning of the game. It's like... The tutorial's like, oh, come on. Right, see if you can get through this door and open up this chest. You open up the chest and he's like, oh, my God, I've never seen anyone do this before. And then he literally explodes. Ah! Oh. <laughs> is, is, is there any similarities to uh, Road Trip to Canada? Uh... You know, I don't know. Because I know, I have that's, an I know that's a game that my uh, my stepfather's into that. He, he likes that. It's basically oh. like a zombie apocalypse. And you got a bunch of people that get together. And uh, they got to make their way to Canada because they believe it's safe there. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, technically they'd be right. There's not enough people up here to have like a really effective zombie apocalypse. No. I mean, Southern Ontario would be fucked, but other than that, we'd be we'd be pretty good. Like, if you went to, like, rural Alberta, you're, you're golden. You'll never see a zombie the whole time you live there. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you what the fun... Actually, that being said, the funny part of that was a, reminded me of a Game Theory episode now, which was like... um, Oh, what was it? It was like, where to live out the zombie apocalypse. Oh, yeah. Uh, from Seven Days to Die, and as I'm sure it said, it was somewhere in rural Canada was the place based on all like statistics and shit. Only then at that point, because 
you found out that that was a safe area, that that wouldn't then be the safe area because everyone would go there. Well, everyone who watched that video and also made it far enough into the zombie apocalypse that they could make a decision to travel. Yeah. So, you know, but, yeah, I don't know. As a five-minute bit of fun, it was something. As a going rogue, possibly. It's not something that I would keep playing all the time, but it, it wasted 45 minutes. So, you know. I really should make a video or two on FTL. Slap that up there. Eh, well, like I say, going rogue's nearly finished if you want to have a go. It's a, it's a game I play. It's a game I, I'm reasonably good at, you know. I think I could uh, pull together a couple wins. Yeah. I'm sure you'd easily, you know, ten attempts to get through eight sectors. Done. But, uh, yeah. I think that ends, then, our little trip through what's been played. So, it's now time to go to news time where shit hits the fan and the fan gets covered in shit. I feel like, as much as I want to start with, like, the one positive piece of news, I feel like at least the first two kind of have a certain chronological order to them. Yeah. Yeah, they do. One makes more sense to follow the other. Yeah, definitely. So I think think we do have to start with the top one, don't we? So this isn't so much a news article, per se. This is me... Watching YouTube videos and then posting stuff I saw. Yeah. I often do. Well, occasionally do. I've done it like four times, like ever. Yeah. So, um. A, it's this, this Crash Team Racing thing, isn't it? Yeah, Crash Team Racing. Uh, remake of a, of a racing game from, of the same name from, uh, I don't know, like the early 2000s or something. 1997. Late, 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 late 90s? Oh, is it 90s? Wow, okay. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was older yeah, than I thought. Yeah. I'm too old. Save me. Save me. <laughs> so anyway, so Crash Team Racing, um, in the same vein as the uh, Crash Reignited trilogy, sort of a amped-up remake of a classic Crash game. Yep. Uh, British uh, YouTuber by the name of Catacaris. I'm sure many people know who he is. Mm. He's a pretty popular guy. Known for he's one he's he's uh, one of those people who's known f- to be in the vein of the like hyperbolic negative reviews of older games and occasionally like nice reviews as well but that's his bread and butter is you know tearing apart bat terrible old games okay so, so very classic yahtzee light yes very very like very much like yahtzee except yeah you know, I, I, I was going to say like even faster speech but pretty close um mm. so he's a big crash fan crash is like the game series that like really got him interested in video games, video game design, and, like, you know, and just, it was a big part of his childhood. So, you know, he's been very positive of the newer Crash games, and uh, I can't recall, I believe, I don't remember if he got a full sponsorship, or if he just got, like, an advanced copy of the racing game. I know that he had some kind of deal where he got the Crash Team Racing and was, like, you know, like, asked to do a review for them. Yeah, some sort of promoted... Some sort of promotional thing. I just, I can't remember the details. All I remember yeah. is that, you know, he gave an honest, glowing review of Crash, Crash Team Racing. He, you know, he pointed out that there were, you know, a couple of small glitches, but overall he enjoyed all the new additions. Uh, yeah, it's just an overall extremely positive review of the game. Uh, and he meant it. It wasn't like, you know, he was just like being paid to say nice things. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I mean, being a big Crash fan, it meant a lot to him that they took the time and care into making a good remake of a good game that he liked many years ago. You know, he uh, then fast forward some uh, some months. You know, he and, uh, and uh, it turns out that the um, the Activision, yeah, who are the publishers, it's fucking Activision, Activision, who are the publishers for the uh, the uh, Crash Team Racing remake. Yep. Uh, decided that they were going to add microtransactions in their little uh, their little e store there they had in Crash the uh, the Crash Team Racing remake. So yep. the context behind this is that the game launched with a system, some kind of coin based system, where by playing the game over and over again, completing any race of any kind, you got coins, which were just sort of in game currency that you could use to buy cosmetics and characters and things like that for different racers yep in the game uh and you know you can get more by completing certain challenges and getting trophies and etc etc but there was no system at launch that allowed you to buy these coins with for currency you just you just had to get them through sheer hard work and determination by playing the game over and over again and if you cared about the game a lot you know you could play the game a over, you know, day, every day, and unlock all mm. your super expensive cosmetics. Yeah. And if you didn't care about the game, whatever. It was a system that was not designed for you in the first place, and it wasn't a big deal if you didn't get in on all the, you know, cool glitz and glam fun of it. Indeed. And then Activision comes by and says that, you know, that's not a very profitable model. So they no. enable people to purchase these coins for. Uh, real money through microtransactions. And this made Mr. Catechorus, who initially praised this system uh, cautiously, but optimistically, for the fact that it rewards you know continuous play and continued reinvestment of time and effort into the game. Yep. You know, he had nothing but nice things to say about the system, but he also knew it but he also noted in his original review that it did look an awful lot like a template for an e-store that would normally house microtransactions. And he was he did note that he was uh, very cautious about what might happen in the future. Oh, and he was right, wasn't he? Yeah. The developers of the game actually went out and said that, you know, they did not have plans to have microtransactions for the game when it came out. So this ended up being a publisher decision on Activision's part. And, of course, because Activision are fucking scumbags. Yeah, and so Catechris, uh came back, went back on the airs and started, you know, and went on a big 18-minute long rant about how mm. he felt, he felt, you know, he felt betrayed in a, you know, on the, in the sense that, you know, they ended up succumbing to the usual microtransaction pitfalls and you know you know all the all the kids and and such that you know would play these games and they see all the cool cosmetics that all their friends and random strangers on the internet are playing with it's like oh well that looks like it's gonna take a really long time to get i guess i'll just buy it i'll make my mom buy it or i'll take their credit card or you know young adults who are impatient and don't have time to invest 40 hours into one game, they'll just, you know, dump a lot of money into it. You know, people who 
have spending habit problems, you know, people who don't do so well mentally at controlling their money yep. will be particularly vulnerable to these microtransactions as they have been in the past. Indeed. I mean, the the, the big thing that would come up on this, um, I'll keep mentioning him every now and again, but Jim Sterling, massive thing against microtransaction. It's not because they're there. I mean, they're a problem, you know, that they come up, but it's, it's, it's things like the loot box thing in the sense that it does. It preys on gambling addicts, young children, anyone who publishers think that they can just make a quick book from. And it's like, you know, you could say, as a as a defender of Michael Jackson, you could be a person who goes and says, well, these, you know, these people should be aware of their their problems and uh you know if they know that's going to be an issue for them they should just not play these games or just distance themselves from it but i so just this... you know i also think it's but that's a f- uh, unfair argument because it's like an entire demographic of potential customers who were never faced with the problem before you know in the time before time before games were all connected to the internet and microtransactions even existed you know an entire demographic of customers has coming uh, has grown up with the video game industry never having to mm. deal with that problem and they're now as young adults who have credit cards and bank accounts and full-time and part-time jobs yeah they're now being confronted by a problem they never had before where they are having difficulties controlling their you know their inhibitions because their brain just don't work quite right, and it's not fair that uh, the uh, gaming industry is preying on that and taking advantage of that. Yeah. And you know, and another thing, what really, what really drove it home, the point home for me, with Incatacris's review, is that it's not like you know, it's not you know, it's not like some game that he didn't care about. You know, you know, like like you could say, Battlefront Two, Star Wars Battlefront Two comes out, and you know, every it's it's full of microtransactions. You know, eighty percent of the game is locked off until you either spend a thousand hours or a thousand dollars playing the game. You know, you have a game like that, which I never had anything to do with. I never cared. I'd be like, oh, microtransactions are a piece of shit. But like for him, it was a lot more personal than that because. Not only was it a game that he liked in the past, not only is it a game that he genuinely enjoyed playing when it was remade, but it was also a game that he was essentially tricked into giving a glowing, positive review on, only to, you know, and, I mean, let's face it, the guy's got a lot of subscribers, he has reach, he has an audience, he, I'm sure there's no doubt in my mind that he probably sold copies of that game with his review, you know. Maybe it was a few hundred, maybe it was a few thousand. There's no real easy way of measuring it, but he sold copies with that review, undoubtedly, with his reach and his influence. And now, potentially, some of those people who bought this game based on his review are now, you know, being, uh, you know, they're being uh, fleeced by Activision when uh, they were never under the impression that that was even a threat. Yeah. Yeah, and that's 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 the bit that sort of pisses me off. Like you say, those two things could twofold. This I never also never agreed with the argument of 
Um, oh, if they don't like these loot boxes, then they shouldn't play these games. Well, no, here's the problem. They're being fucking inserted into almost every game. So now he's saying that because of that, people shouldn't just play video games. No. Keep it's like, yeah, they're, they're being out. interjected into games in which they're completely unnecessary yeah. in the first place. You know, they're being, like, I mean, in this case, they're being retroactively retrofitted into games that did not originally have these problems. So it's like, like what? You'd have to stop playing games in the out of fear of the fact that they might eventually include microtransactions later on? Like, how? F- that's not fair. Hmm. I mean, God, how, what percentage of the world's population, you know, has some kind of mental disorder or illness that, you know, makes it difficult for them to control their spending like that. You know, like how many people, what percentage of the population has some kind of gambling addiction or, you know, money management problems? Like how many people have to not play video games anymore just because, you know, the system is so prevalent? Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's that's the worst bit at the end of the day because they're just looking for the whale the person who will spend the majority of money, regardless of whether they can, whether they need to, whether they want to. It doesn't matter. As long as they get the money, they couldn't give a flying fuck. And that's that's the problem. And, you know, and so loot boxes got justly panned for. I mean, the concept of the loot box itself couldn't, you know, may not be, may not have been that bad. But the way that it was inserted into video game culture, and the way that they just needed to shift the goalposts a little bit more, a little bit more, make what was unacceptable just a bit further out of reach, and then the diehards who, you know, to take into account of the stupid president of the United States, a publisher who could just sit there with their diehard fan, shoot someone in the street and just get away with it, it's, it's, it pisses me off. I mean, and it's not like it's not like they're, you know, between this and cutting costs of stuff, that it's making, um, no, oh, what what to say? That it's, it's making games cheaper because it's not. They're getting even more expensive, and then they're putting these roadblocks in the way for people. It's a it's a load of shit, really. I'm sure you sort of with me on that opinion. It's yeah. I, no, I mean like it's. I I know the world is a different place. It doesn't work the way it used to in the nineties or the eighties, for that matter. You know, I I get that, but it's like it's I don't know. We we seemed we did we did fine for a very 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 long time. Video games did fine for a good solid two decades before this was ever really a thing, and you know it became a juggernaut in the entertainment world. It became you know some. There are companies today that are that rank among the most financially successful in the world and have been in that position since well before, you know, loot boxes and microtransactions and, you know, vaguely disguised, you know, roulette tables were yeah. uh, major parts of the industry. Uh, so I don't really know. I, 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 when people say that like these sorts of things are necessary to keep the gaming industry alive, I was like, I don't believe you. I don't believe that what you're saying is a true statement. Mm. <clears throat> no. Because I know it's not true. I've seen it. Okay, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a young guy. You know, I missed a lot of the early gaming history, but I'm aware of it, and I did catch the little, you know, the tail end of it. You know, 
I saw it. I saw the game industry doing just fine for many years. Yeah. There was, <laughs> yeah. But absolute, for absolutely ages. <coughs> you know? You know, it was like the fact of, oh, look, these additional skins and costumes you can get in games. You know what they used to be back in the 90s? Cheat codes. Yeah, that's actually... I don't. I can't remember if it was in that video or not. I think, but uh, that was uh, a thing that was pointed out either by comments or posts or possibly in the video. I, I don't really remember, but I remember someone saying like, uh, "It used to be like, you know, if I wanted weird cosmetics or to make my character look strange or to unlock a special secret character, you'd either just play the game or you'd punch in a cheat code. Now yeah. instead of punching in a cheat code, you punch in your credit card number." Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the really annoying, depressing thing of it. So, related to that, we'll just move these, because we'll just sort of move this forward. I mean, a couple of the new stories that have come up next sort of link into this, you know, the the, the, the video itself. Um, I'll put the YouTube link of the video in the description for the podcast as well, so you can have a, a watch of it. Um I mean, to be honest, it'd be more likely the other way around. But anyway, um, yeah, based on that, the ESA, fresh from their we can't hear you of giving away a whole bunch of people's information, have managed to get an agreement mm-hmm. with the big console producers that state that loot box odds must be disclosed in their games. So, yeah, uh, so if we're, I guess I guess we can call this uh, a minor uh, upswing in the mood in between our... Uh, our death march of news for the for this uh, afternoon. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's quoted here in this GameIndustry.biz article that uh, ESA Chief Counsel of Tech Policy. My God, what a title! Uh, Mr. Michael Warnecki, or just Warneck, announced. Uh, yeah, that these uh, these are going to be happening, and in addition, as an update in two thousand by two thousand and twenty, the following list of Publishers will also pledge to disclose odds, including Activision Blizzard, Bandai Namco Entertainment, Bethesda, Bungie, Electronic Arts, Microsoft, Nintendo, Sony Interactive Entertainment, Take-Two Interactive, Ubisoft, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment, and Wizards of the Coast. So, all publishers that use loot boxes, pretty much, in AAA gaming. What's the catch by 2020? I mean, they'll find their way to just shove microtransactions in somewhere else at that point. They'll just make loot box disclosure not necessary, but, you know. Notably absent from this list, uh, I mean, lots of people, but uh, notably Epic Games and Riot Games, not on the list. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Ah, here we go. Some other other, uh, ones. This was the before the August the 8th update. Notable publishers include 505 Games... Capcom, CI Games, Deep Silver, Disney, Epic, Focus, Gearbox, Gungho Intellivision Entertainment, Calypso, Konami, Magic Leap, NCSoft, Natsumi, Nexon, Rebellion, Riot, Sega, Square, as you said, um, THQ Nordic, Tencent, and Marvelous. So, the other big ones. But, uh, you know, Epic could turn around and say that they donate 90% of their money to charity, they still wouldn't get the games industry to like them at the moment. So, uh... Yeah, and then a, an even further update on that, that Psionics said they're just going to get rid of him. The guys well, behind Rocket League. Well, that's something. So, you know, that 
is purely, I reckon, is <laughs> funnily enough, is probably based on uh, what Jim Sterling said in one of his videos, which is he gave Rocket League a Game of the Year award, and he doesn't give games a Game of the Year award if they've got if they're fee to pay. So if you've got to pay for the game and then pay for microtransactions, doesn't give an award. Psyonix got the reward for or the award for Rocket League, then brought out the loot boxes. So he felt he had to scrub that from the record. A week later, they said they're getting rid of him. I feel their reputation is required. But, uh, you know. So that's, that's some loot box information. And then speaking of weird shit, this, this came up from Eurogamer. How oh bad boy. is your reputation with a country that you send death threats? Because uh, this, <laughs> this is what happened to uh, a man who isn't named. But uh, he threatened to do a repeat of Kyoto animation. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what happened there, someone sent death threats towards a animation studio in Japan, then set fire to said animation studio, killing a bunch of people in there. 35 people, to be exact. Absolute dickhead. <laughs> Simple. Yeah. Okay. Situation on that. But, uh, yeah, he, he sent this uh, death threat over email to Square Enix, saying, Give me back my money from your shit game. Do you want a repeat of Kyoto Animation? He promptly got arrested and was told by uh, told police, quote, I was pissed off at losing in a game, so I sent the mail. Now, there's a few Final Fantasy mobile Square Enix games probably where you could lose like that. If I was to guess anything, maybe Brave Exodus. But, uh, yeah, that's not the first time that it's happened as well, because according to the same Eurogamer article, a 25-year-old nursing care worker threatened staff after failing to get an item in a gacha game, despite spending over fifteen hundred pounds, I wish they had uh, disclosed how much money the uh, this this jackass had, had spent on the game. I would yeah. I would like to know like how much money he thinks is worth. You know, like how much money can can this guy lose in uh, a game before it's worth it for him to go burn a building down with actual human beings inside of it? Yeah. I mean, but, he probably uh, wouldn't have f- done it if he had loot box odds. But it's also, yeah, well, it's like, also, you know, I mean, not not that this is exactly the world's best time to play Devil's Advocate. I genuinely, yeah, this is obviously a very terrible person who's had an abundantly negative reaction to, uh, to this game. Mm. On the same hand, you know, we can't say something like that and then just pretend that we didn't spend the last 20 minutes talking about people with gambling addictions and people with mental health problems playing these games and uh you know this is what this is what these systems do to people man you know it's i mean gambling itself is a problem i mean this if this guy wasn't spending his game on video his money on video games he'd be at a casino somewhere probably so it's not even like but uh it's it's when you can download it into your onto your television and mm. play it from home not even have to get up it's uh, it, it's easier than ever. Yeah, I I I'm personally, it's like I got nothing against gambling as a concept. I I think it's fine as mm. long as it is heavily regulated, and I've been kept, you know, in a very separate, very segregated part of the world. I it needs to be, it needs to be like a process to go to a place or to interact with a thing which allows you to gamble, in my yes. opinion. Because it needs to be a very conscious decision, a very conscious act for a person to go out of their way to go 
in Gamble because of the risks it place it uh, creates for susceptible individuals, mm. which yeah, is why so- it's so dangerous to have these you know sort of pseudo gambling systems in our gaming you know our gaming industry. Yeah, where, where stuff like this can, is just bought as a shop item, as opposed to you know, it's like it's just it's casinos that you it's a casino that you can download onto your PS4 or your PC or your Xbox, and you don't even win money for it. You just win pixelated digital avatar that will disappear in a year when the game goes out of business. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that guy's a dick, but so are the people who make loot box systems and gadget systems. So what do you want? What do you want? What can you say? Yeah, no, it's true. Maybe it's just better if they do just fully regulate loot boxes. You know what? Okay, we obviously can't be trusted as a as a species now in in terms of that. So you know what? Okay, what we can be trusted to do is make decisions and learn. You know, well, I kind of brought it up at the beginning of the podcast. I'm gonna sort of bring it up very briefly at the end. Just censoring shit that you think is the problem instead of dealing with the actual problem is fucking stupid. This comes off the news that was based everywhere that Walmart stores were pulling down and unplugging advertisements for what they perceived as violent video games in wake of the mass shootings that occurred. Well, it'd be two weekends ago now. Because that solves the problem. Uh, yes, I... Okay, here's here's the thing about that. Before I was kind of like, you know, I wasn't really taking the guy's side. I was just like, okay, let's just, let's just, uh, you know, I just wanted to bring all the points to the table. Mm. This one I am going to play somewhat of a devil's advocate on because while I don't think that, you know, their, their uh, solution, quote unquote, is going to fix any problems, I also think that I don't think this has anything to do with necessarily, you know, solving the problem of violent video games and violent imagery creating, uh, you know, violent criminals in our society. I don't think that really is what this is about. I think this Mm. is more just a sensitivity issue. I think it's just, it's like when people are hit with tragedy, when when a region is hit by a major tragedy like this, you know, uh, a violent act is committed against one or a number of individuals and it seems it seems unprovoked it seems totally you know it seems completely out of left field it shocks people and it upsets them and the last thing they want to see the next time they go out to the store to buy their groceries is things that remind them of the this tragic event that you know has brought their their community to to heal mm. So and and I and Walmart did specifically say that you know like this isn't you know it's not about you know it's not a, it's not like this is like their step one in removing violent games from society you know they just said it's like this is a temporary thing this is just a temporary measure it's like we're gonna take things down and let let the emotions settle let people heal from this uh, tragic event and you know and then we'll talk about it later yeah okay no i i I, yeah i get that and i guess actually when you think about it the shooting happened in a walmart in el paso texas didn't it the the first right right that's that is that is also important context yeah and now yeah it's go ahead 
Oh no, sorry. Now continue. Sorry, I was just. I've got a whole other. I've got like the rest of this my contingency to go on. So I mean, if you've got any more points or anything. No, no, I think, I think yeah, no, because let's like say I think well, main my main sort of issue on this is that it's 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 a repeater what happened in the late nineties with Night Trap, the game that was out for the Sega CD, where there was this threat that there was like sexual violence going on in the in the game, and therefore everything needs to be monitored, and that's what brought the age rating system into effect. Between that and Mortal Kombat, you know, that sort of brought the age rating system in and then there was this fear and it always seems to happen in you know sort of the 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 populated countries that there is this sort of constant battle for correlation on whether watching something or doing something will inherently make you think that you could go out and recreate what you've learned and you know that might be true for like a very small mentally unhealthy percentage of the population but the overwhelming majority of people understand the barriers between fiction and reality. Yeah. And, you know, it's just not even relevant to consider the correlation. Uh, and it's like, I actually, uh, I, just to go on find a bit of a tangent here, I watched, I don't know if you've ever watched the show, uh, uh, sorry, First We Feast? I haven't, but I know of it. Yeah, so First We Feast, uh, I should say it's a channel, not a show, but the First We Feast channel has a show called Hot Ones, which is essentially just a, a, a show where uh, a guy, I can't remember his name, uh, does interviews with various celebrities, internet celebrities, real celebrities, actors, musicians, what what have you. Anyone who's relevant at the time. It's yeah. a massively popular show. We could, it's like like 10 million subscribers, like millions and millions of views. Um, one of the um, one of the my personal favorite guests on that show was uh, Alton Brown, uh, right. who's a is an American uh, cooking show icon over here. I'm sure he's I'm sure he's I'm sure he's well known in many places, but in particular he's well known in the states uh, for I believe it was Good Eats. And like food science, food scientists or something like that. But uh, uh, so he's basically he's American version of who we would have over here. We got a we got a cook called Heston Blumenthal, who's a sort of food scientist. Mixes yeah. two two odd flavors together to get something that is actually considered quite tasty because of how they realize how the taste buds operate. Yeah, he's the kind of he's the kind of guy who became very popular amongst like the common people, so to speak. You know, like as opposed to shows that, like, really, as opposed to shows like like Iron Chef or something that, which like back in its prime was like very much appealed to like people who are like really into like the high art of cuisine. Yeah, uh, high dining he, sort of thing. Yeah, Alton Brown was very much appealed to sort of the the layman in the cooking, the layman of the cooking world, in the sense that he could take. Like a very complicated idea of like why food tastes like this. Why do these molecules interact in these ways to make mm-hmm. your food your your palate go ooh? And he could take it and make it into very relatable and understandable terms. And he could, you know, do very makes very simple adjustments and suggestions and very simple tips and tricks for cooking that anyone could do and make it taste like it was prepared by you know a Michelin star chef. Yeah. 
you know, he made food fun and interesting and and all that. Uh, he was, you know, he's also known for somewhat of an eccentric personality. Like he's there, he's very much like a, like not like a Guy Fieri kind of hyperbolic personality, but like just sort of like a a bit of an oddball. You know, he's got a funny hairstyle and he talks in a a quick and quirky way. So people liked him for his mm-hmm. personality and for the way he treated food. Uh, and he was on that show, and one of the questions that he was asked was, um, I'm, "I'll get around to it. I, I know I've been going on a bit of a long tangent, but I'm 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 bringing it right. I'm bringing it around. I'm completing my orbit here." Okay. Uh, one of the questions he was asked was like, "What were any like? What were like the watershed moments of you know the cooking industry and like the the food network as a whole? Like, what were think? Were there any like major events or shows that came out that?" made food network as big as it was and he he very plainly just said like 9-11 you know 9-11 is what made food at the industry what it is today uh and he sort of related it to how you know there was this great big tragic event you know 4,000 dead and you know it was a violent it was attack on american soil the first one since pearl harbor uh and you know, it was this event that brought everyone down and all of a sudden no one, everyone was like afraid and scared and sad and all they wanted was comfort. All they wanted was something nonviolent, something gentle, something comfortable. And so the Food Network, which at the time had been a very specialty niche network, suddenly exploded in viewership because no one wanted to watch the news, no one wanted to watch you know, sitcoms or dramas or anything. They just wanted to watch cooks prepare food and make, you know, and smile and, and, and it just, they just wanted to be comforted. And, uh, mm. so like, I think that that kind of sentiment is a big part of, uh, where Walmart is coming from. I don't believe it's necessarily coming from a place of censorship or, paranoia i i think it's just about trying to console you know a wounded community mm. you know try and get their mind off of the tragedy for a few weeks or a few months or what have you yeah uh so that's where that's coming from i think what's also in the article and what i think is closer to what you're you were originally afraid of and originally leaning towards yeah is, you know, everyone's favorite president oh, ranting yeah. on about how, you know, violent video games cause violent criminals and we need to heavily regulate this uh, this industry. And it's like, I feel like Walmart's solution is a temporary fix done out of sensitivity, whereas Trump is talking about, you know, turning it, you know, making, creating permanent legislature that would uh, that would heavily regulate the video game industry. And that's the kind of thing that I don't agree with because I and I would have I would have thought that Mr. Donald Trump, ever the uh, uh, economist, ever the capitalist, ever the Republican, would be would understand the value in letting the market sort of regulate itself and, you know, leave it up to the parents and the individuals to decide what sort of things are okay for them and their children and you know 
decide for themselves what their limitations are and what they should and should not be exposed to. Yeah, and certainly not tell them what their limitations are and what they think they shouldn't should and shouldn't be exposed to. That's that's the sort of sort of his issue. I mean, now that you've mentioned it about the Walmart, I can see where they're they're coming on in regards to it. But for for I feel for, for sort of Donald Trump and that that's that's just another sign of a bit of control, to be honest. But that's that's yeah, not it's like I I just you know, I think my concern isn't what Walmart is doing. My concern is opportunists who are prone to scapegoating, like you know, uh, the current president in the United States. You know, I'm concerned that they will use a combination of this event plus Walmart's reaction from it, or any other company's reaction to it, for that matter. Whoever else may, who whoever else may voluntarily join up with them. You know, nothing has been said yet, but you never know. You know, yeah, I, I'm afraid of them using that as a jumping-off platform for making their campaign and making their point. Yeah, we should also say at that point that um, Respawn, or there was Respawn and EA, were supposed to be doing a Apex Legends tournament recently as well, and that's been postponed in wake of the shootings. And a bit closer to home on that, or a bit closer to the time, um, there was supposed to be a Bloomhouse horror-ish film due out very soon called The Hunt, which is a a, vi- a film starring Hilary Swank as a bunch of people who get kidnapped by some elitist people to hunt for purely for sport purposes. And that's also been postponed indefinitely now due to the mass shootings as well. So there's a lot of media that's doing their part, shall we say, in terms of not glorifying gun violence, but not inflaming the issue. You know, I, that's that's and that's what I mean. This is this is the difference between sensitivity and censorship. Mm. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's... What, what these people are doing is is sensitivity. What you know, what the politicians are proposing, that's censorship, and it's important to understand the distinction. Yeah, true. Yeah, because it's it's not like they've been taken down because of a government thing. They've they volunteered to uh, volunteered to do it. Let's 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 just let's just put it at that. But I mean, at the end of the day, until people actually realistically talk about the gun control problem, that's all it's going to be is people volunteering to drop stuff to give people that little bit of time before things get back to normal, and it happens again. The cycle needs to stop. But until the right target is looked at, that's going to be tough. Yeah, you mentioned gun control. I mean, I'm not even going to go. I'm not even going to start on that. I have actually have something I want to talk to you about after the podcast that is related to that that you might get a kick out of. Yeah. Well, not like a but, good, not like a, not like a good kick, but a bad kick, but a kick. But, yeah, some sort of yeah interest out of. But yeah, I guess that that'll be that'll be the 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 right jumping off point to wrap this podcast up then. So, yeah, uh, my throat's starting to hurt after all that talking, so uh, I'm, I'm yeah. good. Yeah, no, definitely. So, yeah, we'll get on to that. So, just to give people the reminder, since we've been getting some new subscribers recently, if you are one of those new subscribers and you're listening, hello, welcome. Thank welcome. you for... Yeah. Sorry for this. Sorry for the downer of a podcast. Yeah, we, we're not usually like this. There's a lot of happy, happy, fun stuff, but sometimes we can get into some actual discussion as well. But, uh, yeah... 
So you, you know, you're on here. You've 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 checked out based on the channel trailer. You want to know when the schedule is. Okay, here's the schedule. Tuesday, it's the podcast. You're listening to it. Every other Wednesday, when it's back from hiatus, shattered reflections. Uh, Thursdays, team fight Thursdays for all your lol and team fight tactics love, and maybe even Dota Underworlds and Auto Chess if we ever get round to it. Uh, Fridays, General's War Table. Stee is either very close or finished XCOM 2. I'll have to be honest, I didn't get to the end. I left it as a cliffhanger for myself. I just put the stuff up and put it on the social media. Uh, Saturdays, play sessions for when we all want to get together and play some games. Simple as. Uh, Sundays, sibling rivalry for when uh, Duncan and his sister Andrea want to play some games and not necessarily work together. And uh, Mondays yep. uh, is, is going rogue for when we want to challenge each other. Yeah, we and uh, there may be some more projects coming down the pipeline, specifically on mine and my sister's end. There, not necessarily yeah. related to sibling rivalry. It might end up being a new thing. We're not really sure what's going on there. Uh, we're looking into making some recordings. Yeah, and uh, and potential streaming. Games. Yeah, streaming as well. Yeah, I've I've, I've been thinking about. I've been wanting to do Twitch streams for a while now, uh, but just lacking a second monitor and a decent setup, I just it's just never been really viable. Hmm. But now that I've got a monitor, a second monitor, you know, and a fairly decent setup, good some good equipment, I can maybe consider revisiting that idea. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so but yeah, me me and my sister are planning on doing some recordings on console games. Particularly games on the Switch, but maybe the PS4 as well. Aye. So uh, we're very excited about that. We'll have more information on that later, probably by the next podcast. Coolios. That'll be something. And I guess in the meantime, then, just in case, I'll have to just dust off the details for the Immaterial Gamers Twitch channel as well. Because, you know, there's there's one there. I was going to consider doing streaming at some point, and then priorities changed. <laughs> but, yeah. So that's your that's your, your your schedule for the week, and uh, you know, hopefully, what we'll do next week, we'll try and do a try and well, hopefully, if the news is good, we can do a happier podcast. Yeah, hopefully, so. uh, it's uh, it hurts my throat to be talking about the sad news because sad news usually requires a lot more discussion than the happy news. Yeah, yeah, definitely, but uh, you know, hopefully, we'll be able to. Save our throats and everything will be good. So, uh, yeah, thank you for listening. Duncan, thank you for joining. Always a pleasure. And uh, until next time, people, for God's sake, actually. Yeah, this more is, this than, is more than ever. Gotta emphasize this one today. Yeah. Do not kill each other. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, have a good week. Have an uneventful week. And we'll see you then. See you later. Bye bye. Bye.